Well, one old preacher said that he came into a house and he saw a piece of cloth that had been used for embroidery, but it was an unintelligible mess, just a clash of colors, uh, a mixture of tangled threads, unrelated ends, unravelable knots. And yet he picked it up and he turned it over and on the other side was beautifully embroidered the words, God is love. He wisely reflected, our life is like that piece of embroidery, tangled threads, unravelable knots, unrelated colors, loose ends. But if we could see it as God sees it, as we shall one day see it. Every one of us... uh, inherits unfinished tasks from those who went before us. Every one of us leaves tasks unfinished to those who will succeed us. The history of the world is like the cathedrals they used to build in the Middle Ages when the hands that dug the foundation were dead and laid in the grave generations before the gold cross was set on the top of the spire and the stained glass placed in the windows. Christ is doing a great work in the world. We are very focused on the moment, and yet we do not see the big picture. It is enough for us that we be privileged merely to be able to place a few precious gemstones in that wall of the city whose builder and maker is God. In our call to worship from Hebrews chapter 2, we are reminded that Christ is reigning and yet we do not yet see all things subject to him. We are working, we are in the process of making the invisible reign of Christ visible. That is what the uh, work of the kingdom is all about. And yet, it is a far, far greater work than any of us can do alone. We gather together once again, and we pray that the Lord would revive his work in the midst of years. And we are called to worship now from Hebrews chapter He has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he has put all things under his feet, him in subjection, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray once more that we would have eyes to see this one who has been crowned with glory and honor for a time made lower than the angels, even subject to the suffering of death. But oh, we see Jesus now, high and ascended, the the cross exchanged for the crown, the pierced hands now grasping the scepter of the universe. Help us likewise to press on and continue this work that we have been given in your kingdom. And we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. May your worship tonight be an encouragement to us to press on in the race of our calling. For Christ's sake we pray. 
Amen. We uh, have as the theme of our evening, the reigning Christ. We're going to be turning to number 99B as we begin. And uh, we will sing of the Lord who is King indeed. 99B in the blue book. Amen. Thank you. In our consecutive reading of God's Word, we are in Judges chapter 6, where uh, Gideon is called to deliver, to deliver Israel from the oppression of Midian. We are reminded in several ways in Gideon's story that the Lord is pleased to use very weak, very unlikely vessels in order that he might receive all the glory. And indeed, uh, uh, Gideon is greeted by the Son of God, uh, called here the Angel of the Lord. But uh, as we'll see, this is no mere angel or messenger. This, uh, this is our pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, Gideon is greeted by him, Hail, mighty warrior, valiant warrior. And uh, he's, uh, he's a who, me? He's, uh, he's a big chicken. Uh, and yet the Lord has, is able to see beyond where uh, his natural weakness has brought him. And so, as Hebrews puts it, reflecting on the story, by faith, Gideon and the others were made strong. Here now from Judges chapter 6. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. 
And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel, whatever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and with their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who were oppressed, oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave, them your, gave you their land. I also said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, the son, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with with us, why then has all this been happening to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If I have now found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread and an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot. He brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them out on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, For I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. 
you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abizrites. Now it came to pass in the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of the seven-year-old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to those who stood beside him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, they called him Jeroboam, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizarites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout the land of Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall place a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you shall save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more, I pray. Uh, let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our gracious Father, we come to you once more and we bless you for having glorified our victorious Savior, that with a triumphant resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven, you have seated him at your right hand. And so we pray that his triumphs and glories may continue to advance and that his uh, 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 kingdom should come, his will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Make us to see more clearly through his sufferings as we uh, see the work that he has uh, done in the earth, the reward that he has won. For he was slain and by his blood he has purchased men from God, to God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
Our Father, we pray that you would continue to extend the holiness of your name and make this uh, season of great uh, uncertainty and perplexity among the nations, one in which people cause are caused to inquire of you, to seek you and to find you, though you are not far from each one of us. We pray that uh, those who are doing your work, those who are ministering in difficult times, in difficult places such as Iran and China, where the uh, work has uh, been so difficult in years past, we pray that this would give them an opportunity to be able to more freely testify of the grace of God, that you would bless the, the church in those lands where the virus has particularly hard hit. We pray likewise for our country as um, our uh, numbers and casualties continue to climb. We pray that those who have put their hope in this world and upon the prosperity and the peace that it can provide, that these should uh, find themselves uh, inquiring what they should do to be saved. And we pray that you would bless those of us who have friends and relatives and neighbors, those who need to hear again the word of grace, that when we speak again to them, that they would be receptive to hear. We pray that you would bless our testimony of the Lord Jesus. We pray for our leaders once again. We pray for our president and our governor, for these who are making, indeed, life and death decisions, very weighty and heavy ones. And we pray that you would uh, lead them forth in wisdom and in righteousness, and that they should be caused to seek you and to rule in your fear. We thank you again for the work of those who are uh, laboring in hospitals and nursing homes, those who are caring for patients. We think again of, of uh, Betty, of John Shannon, Kayla, of uh, Steve Kellum, for others who are working in a variety of ways to serve those in need at this time. We pray that you would bless their work and keep them safe. And uh, we thank you that our part of the world has had it, uh, such a uh, a, a light uh, infection rate. Uh, pray that you would continue to strengthen us for those days ahead. We uh, thank you once again for the blessing of being able to meet here virtually through the technology and of computers and pray that as we uh, are separated briefly for this time from your worship, uh, from the table of communion, from the, uh, uh, the praise of the assembly, we pray that you would continue your work among us, strengthening our hearts, that this time of walking alone should be a time of special blessing and that uh, you would be with the praises of your people in all their dwellings. We thank you again for our time together of worship tonight and pray that you would be with us in Christ's name. Amen. Right. We, uh, we turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a very commonly quoted psalm in the New Testament that speaks about the enthronement of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he is set upon that holy hill of Zion to rule in the midst of his enemies. And therefore, all the kings of the earth that have taken their stand against him are called to bow before him, to kiss the Son, his wrath to turn, lest they perish in the way. For all nations have been delivered to the Lord, uh, um, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's sing together Psalm 2, Why Do Gentile Nations Rage? Why do Gentiles...
Amen. Thank you. Uh, we, we turn this evening back to Philippians. We've been having an, uh, some uh, uh, rather ra- random messages from uh, various parts of Philippians, a, a book that speaks in so many ways to a difficult situation and fills us with the joy of the Lord. We're studying this among the ladies' Bible study uh, ladies right now, and so it's been on my mind, including a passage that we considered this week and going back to it. I thought that it had some good encouragement for us all. So I'd like to read to you from Philippians chapter 3. Maybe I could ask the volume to be very slightly turned up a little bit. Thank you so much. Don't want to blast you all out, but uh, hope this helps you at, at home. Thank you. From Philippians chapter 3, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I have more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching toward those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk for you have for us a pattern. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In the days in which he was known as Saul of Tarsus, he outstripped all of his contemporaries in his religious accomplishment and zeal. His was a blind zeal. By nature and by nurture, 
He was a man of a very single ideal, to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. If there was ever a man who was able to boast in what he had accomplished in the religious sphere, if there was any man who could claim to be right with God on the basis of all the commandments he had kept and how hard he had worked to obey the Jewish law from his youth, it was Saul. He had all the advantages of birth, born and raised in the strictest sect of Judaism, trained in Jerusalem as a Jewish rabbi under Gamaliel, one of the most respected teachers to this very day in the history of Judaism. Paul was sincere. He was devoted. He kept the commandments, he said, blamelessly, at least insofar as those commandments were applied and understood in Pharisaical Judaism. He could have said, like that rich young ruler that uh, Jesus met so many uh, years ago, that he had kept all the commandments from his youth. He had a superficial understanding, but then again, so do all who have not known the true grace of God. Looking back, Paul could see that he was, in fact, proud, confident in the flesh, boasting in what he was and who, what he had done, interested in what was gain to him, and all the while, he did not know God, why he was a rebel against God. In fact, when the Son of God came into the world, Paul led the persecution against his followers. He was sincere, but sincerely wrong, devout, but devoted to a fatal error. And then came the day when all that changed, the day that he found himself face-to-face with Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, he asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And on that day, not only did Paul's view of Christ change, his view of himself forever changed. His life ambition changed. And you will find that new ambition stated for us in this passage What things were gained to me, that is, what things I formerly sought, the things that I formerly boasted in, I have counted as loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And that word rubbish, as you you might know, often translated uh, filth, or uh, a related word, the old King James gives the sense of the common meaning, dung, a rather strong word. All that he was so proud of, all that he had accomplished, all his righteousness from the law was so much dung and filth, less than worthless. It was a stench. And this is why he describes in detail in the letter to the Romans and elsewhere how far We have all fallen short of the glory of God. If a man like Paul and all that he had done had fallen so short, Paul realized how foolish it is to compare himself to to others. He thought he had kept the law until that commandment, thou shalt not covet, got under his skin. He had not kept that law. Who was he fooling? All of his imagined righteousness, however impressive, had only been blinding him to his real state. His religious ambition had just been selfish ambition. And as you know, a great deal of what goes under the name of religious zeal 
is really just self-ambition, helping people feel good about themselves by comparing themselves to others, and they are not wise. At the end of World War I, General Pershing sent word to some of the troops in Europe that there was going to be a victory parade through the streets of Paris with select soldiers. And there were two requirements to qualify in the march. They had to have a good record, and they had to be at least 186 centimeters tall. Well, the uh, American unit was uh, very excited, and immediately they uh, started lining up to see who was taller than whom. Uh, these were Americans. They had no idea how big 186 centimeters was. Uh, nevertheless, excitement was building about which of them would be representing the company in that victory parade. So the men began comparing themselves, lining up back to back to see who were the tallest and the taller men in the company were mocking the shorter ones. Too bad for you, shorty. Uh, we'll think of you when we are marching through Paris. Well, at last, the American officer came to find out if there were any candidates for the parade, and he put a mark on the wall of 186 centimeters, and it turned out that the tallest man in the company stood up first, squared his mark, uh, squared to the mark, and he was a quarter inch shy of six foot one half inches. It so happened that all the men in that company were below the mark. Those who had been comparing themselves with themselves, those who were mocking others so confidently, were also falling short. Paul had a similar experience. He had compared himself with others. He had plenty to boast in. But all the time, he was using the wrong measurement not just a quarter of an inch short. He was with all of his fellow Jews, as he wrote to them in Rome, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have been so proud. We have looked down on others. But we have to learn to say with God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Paul's experience was unique in many ways, but his experience of being a proud, boastful sinner who looked down on others and who had to be humbled if he was saved by grace, that is, at some point, the realization of every last Christian. By, proud, by, by nature, we are proud of what we have to offer God. By grace, we learn that we need to be forgiven, not just for our, our sins, but even our righteousness, which is so much dung. By nature, we are confident in ourselves. By grace, we must learn to be confident only in Christ. Christ was his new ambition. Christ was his future. Everything else that had distracted him, he threw overboard. He expresses the same idea in our text over and over again so that we won't miss it. He counted all things as loss, verse 7, for the sake of Christ, verse 8, for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, again, verse 8, that I may gain Christ, verse 9, to be found in him, verse 10, that I may know him. Here is the new ambition. He knows that there is no hope but in Christ, no greater joy than in Christ. And therefore, he says, I just want to know him, to have fellowship with him, even in his sufferings, to be more like him, to go forward with him. Christ was Paul's future. Those things in his past were no longer going to determine his future. And so he describes in the later part of this passage the mindset of running the race that I'd like to go over with you tonight. 
the mindset of reaching ahead to the high upward calling of Christ, and he urges all Christians to follow his example in this. Paul is very quick to say he had not arrived. He had certainly not reached perfection now. Uh, So many teachers in the church since then have boasted in perfectionism. Uh, Perhaps even at this time, some of the other teachers in the church, those dogs, those evil workers that he spoke about earlier in chapter 3, had said that they had been perfected, that they had kept the commandments. Well, Paul says, I myself have fallen short. Uh, he, he himself has not attained. But he says two things. I am forgetting what is behind. And then positively, I am stretching forward to those things that are ahead. And this will be our meditation for this evening. First, forgetting what is behind. Forgetting what is behind. His goal was to know Christ and to fulfill now all that Christ had in mind for him. He says, I certainly have not arrived. He looked back with a great deal of regret. He looked even at his present and realized how much farther he had fallen short to where he had longed to be. And this is the mindset that we are to have as well. This is a mark of all those who follow Jesus that we are sadly not satisfied. There is much we can mourn in our past. There is much to lament in our present. The reality is the more that we come to know God, the more that we sense our need to grow, the more we desire to do, the more that we can lament falling short. When Christians become satisfied, they cease to grow and feel and act as they should. Christ allows no room for any bland, tepid, mediocre life that has nothing to regret, that strives for nothing but to be lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. We are called to a single-minded, determined pursuit of Christ and all that he has taught us to be. And therefore, I say the first essential to running running the race is dissatisfaction. A dissatisfaction deep down that will lead you to say, I cast away all that is all that is to be lamented in my past. All that is deep inside of me, I lay at the foot of the cross. I am forgetting what is behind. Normally in Scripture, of course, forgetting is a very bad thing. Forgetting is one of the main problems of the people of God over the years. We read this in Judges, how time and again they forgot the Lord and how bad it turned out for them. Uh, we, we read elsewhere about forgetting God's blessings, forgetting God's mighty works that he has done for us in the past, forgetting how he has liberated us from the bondage of sin, forgetting the joy of the Lord and running after other things. So many problems stem from our forgetting. But here is one thing that we must forget, not erasing our memories of the past, but we must have a conscious refusal to let our past dictate our future. We are not satisfied to continue as we have been. And if we have looked around and compared ourselves to others and we feel that we are doing well, that we are ahead in our race, we have not the correct mindset. If we compare ourselves with ourselves, the apostle says elsewhere, 
we are not wise. Paul has good reason to forget his past, and so do we. We've all done things for which we have been greatly ashamed. But God has remembered our sins no more against us. We have been forgiven. We are free in Christ. We have a new heart and a new spirit. And this urges us to let the past no longer hinder us. Let go of past guilt. Let go of past sin, of past habit, uh, of anything that would distract us from looking forward to what God would have us become. We have past burdens. We have bitter relationships. We have besetting sins. These things still affect us. If these things are slowing us down in the race, then they need to be forgotten. The past does not define you. Your culture, where you were raised, does not define you. Your friends and family, where you were brought up, do not define you any longer. Your significance is not bound up in whether you were raised a Pharisee of Pharisees according to some tradition. No significance of any Christian is bound up in his past. For God has made you a child and the the future stretches out with great opportunity. Paul could remember that he was the chief of sinners in his persecution. He brings this up frequently in his writing. He didn't forget his past sins in that sense. But it helped him remember God's mercy and grace. And so it encouraged him to live a very, very different life going forward. Don't live in the past, says the the bopper sticker. There's no future in it. Well, psychotherapy tells us that we are really, in so many ways, the product of our past, that we are the the helpless, hapless victims of what other people have done to us. This is the greatest thing that defines who we are. And this might make some sense if there were no creator and no redeemer. If we were just the deterministic particles, we would be the product of meaningless, purposeless, evolutionary or physical processes, and our identity really would be defined as the sum total of our past. But this is not the way that God has made the world, first of all, and constituted us as free agents in his image. And this definitely is not what uh, he has made us to be as we are born again, given a new spirit. The more that uh, we uh, recognize this, that our past does not determine our future, the better we will be able to run the waste. The more that we are able to forget those things that are behind, the more that we will be able to recall the future is what matters. Too many Christians are trying to run the waste by trying to solve what is back there in the past under the blood. And dear friends, you know that in so many ways, the scripture reminds us that the solution to our problems is not going back to the past and figuring out things as Freud taught us. Oh no, it is applying the truth as it is in Christ Jesus to us now and every step going forward. Do not be satisfied with who you are or what you've done. Have a holy dissatisfaction that causes you to turn away from your past and press on to lay hold of Christ for what he's laid out from your future. The first point is 
forgetting what is behind. And this leads us second to, to the positive encouragement from this passage. Reaching toward what is ahead. Reaching toward what is ahead. Verse 12, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. And again, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here is his positive pursuit of Christ, which he encourages us to follow. As many of us are as mature, we have a pattern in him. What does it mean for you and for me? From the passage, it means at least communion, conformity, and commitment. It means that he is seeking communion with Christ, as am I. My heart longs to know more of the presence, of the fellowship, of the sweetness of Christ, of his present direction and leading in his word and spirit at all times. The very thought of uninterrupted, free communion with God in Christ at all times is our future, and we are pressing on more and more to that, seeking communion. It also means seeking conformity to Christ, as Paul uh, puts it in another language here, that he wishes to serve the Lord and to be like his Redeemer, even in his sufferings, but through, through his love in his life, in word and in deed, he wishes to be uh, in all ways conformed to the image of Christ. And third, he is seeking commitment to Christ. I want to know his will and to walk in his way, to honor and to glory in God our Savior. We want to enlist everything for his cause. No more, he says in the previous chapter, selfish ambition. No more self-seeking. No, we have in mind the things of Christ. This is the goal that we are to have if we are to run the race forward. A very positive, a very forward-looking mindset. Having the positive mindset is essential to running the race. We'll never be able to, look the ra- to win the race looking backward. We have to be able to have the, uh, the end in mind and look forward. In 1951, Florence Chadwick became the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. And then a year later, she set out to swim the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the coast of the Southern California. So a few boats surrounded her as she swam in order to uh, be there for her if she needed, to watch out for sharks, to come to her aid if she became hurt somehow or grew tired. After about 15 hours, a thick fog set in on the Southern California coast so thick that she could barely even see the boats that were accompanying with her on the swim. But she pressed on. Nevertheless, after another hour, she began to cry out to the people in the boats that she was going to give up, that she had to be taken out of the water. Her mother, who was in one of the boats, encouraged her, called out to her that she was close, that she could make it. But Florence was exhausted. She stopped swimming. She was pulled into the boat, and she got on board, and they very soon found that she was less than half a mile away. At the news conference the next day, she said, I became discouraged. All I could see was the fog. 
I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And friends, uh, so often our minds, our lives are clouded by the fog. We do not have the end in mind. We do not have the goal in mind as we ought to have. We need to turn away from the things which are going to distract us from the vain things of life. We need to forget those things which are past. If we would lift our gaze from the fogginess of this world and if we would keep our eyes on the goal. We would fix our eyes on Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness, and see him, brothers and sisters, that his glory would still be our hope and every ounce of strength and every bit of our endurance that we need would be employed to finish the race. Oh, that we could look to him more, stretching toward those things which are ahead. We wrongly, as I said earlier, think that sin has so much power and authority in our lives. And we read that Christ has broken that dominion, that we might run. God provides us the joy of his direction. Here again, I press on, says Paul, reaching forward, pressing toward the goal, having this mind, letting us walk. Paul reached forward to embrace Christ and the path that God had laid out for him. It didn't mean that he was free from trouble. He was in prison as he wrote this very letter. He was chained to a a, a Roman guard. But even in this, God had a good purpose, and Paul was prepared. He had his eye upon Christ. And no matter what the future should be, even death, he knew that God would glorify himself in Paul. Two brief lessons, then, and we'll conclude. Two lessons, and we'll conclude. We need to learn to stand firm by moving forward. Stand firm by moving forward. Philippians 4 begins, So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. The whole thing here had been about pressing on, moving forward, running hard. So the way to stand firm is to press on. The key to stability in the Christian life is to keep moving forward. You say it doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, well, think about it like riding a bike. You try to stay stationary on a bike. It's very, very difficult to balance. If you want to stay up on a bike, you have to make forward progress. You get the thing going, even a little child can learn to balance. The faster the bike moves, physically speaking, the more stable it is. The slower you go, the more unstable. If you go too slow, you will not be able to maintain your balance. This is how it is in the Christian life. If you are to maintain your balance, you must be making forward progress. You must keep running. Too many people are sitting around crossroads waiting for direction from God, waiting for him to give him give them the, the go-ahead. They are waiting rather than making plans. They are waiting rather than pursuing the Lord. Year after year goes by, they are not moving ahead. They want to be careful. And yet, perhaps like uh, we read earlier in Gideon's case, they're putting out fleeces. God, if you want me to do this, well, do something supernatural. Make it very plain. 
the Lord has said to us all, you are in a race. The go-ahead, I told you this is a race. When I called you at the beginning, I fired the gunshot, and now you are to run the race as a Christian. In a race, you start running and you keep running until you get to the finish line. You do not stop at every turn and wait for permission to proceed. If we are to maintain our balance in the Christian life, we must do so by continuing to advance forward. Second, we must be humble and holy, not merely real and authentic. We must be humble and holy, not merely real and authentic. An application of this passage, because if you haven't noticed, real and authentic are very, very cool right now. Uh, Americans are spending a fortune on hipster gear so that people will admire them for appearing that they don't actually care how they appear in their dress. For the Christian, the, uh, the, the trend to be real and authentic can perhaps be helpful, but often not so helpful. It is helpful if it makes us like the apostle, more humble, more honest about our sins, more ready to say we have not arrived, we have not been perfected, that we have plenty of shame in our past and even in our present. We are eager to glory in God's grace and our righteousness that we have received and to press on. And so if this is uh, what being authentic means to you, have at it. However, authenticity can be bad when it has the opposite effect when people try to be real and authentic without being godly and humble. In other words, when it makes people complacent, when it makes people no longer ashamed of their past or their present, when it makes people perhaps proud of how authentic that they are and look down on inauthentic people, it makes people reluctant to say that the Lord must deliver them from such and such sin. It makes us comfortable sometimes to say that we are messed up. And if we are comfortable being messed up, that's bad. Well, if you've grown up around religious people who look down on real people, it might be a breath of fresh air. But that's really just exchanging one form of pride for another. It's bad to have authenticity without humility. Paul was real, and yet Paul had the highest standards of holiness for himself and others. Paul was authentic, and yet he had such a passion, he was intimidating. And and this is the way it should be. We are to be not only real and authentic, but humble and holy. And if we have this, then we have the apostles' balance. Some years ago, in conclusion, I, uh, uh, there was a, a Unitarian radio ad that uh, said, Come as you are, we don't want to change you. Well, Jesus Christ was the furthest thing possible from a Unitarian. He was not, he was not satisfied. Paul himself was not satisfied with his past or present in the Christian life. And he holds himself up as an example for others to follow. I want you to follow me. Let us forget those things which are behind and let us continue to press forward in that high upward calling in Christ Jesus. John Newton said it better than I could possibly say it. He said, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality 
and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. May this be our boast and our whole boast, only by the grace of God do we even run the race. But racers we are, by the grace of God, we are what we are. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for that uh, calling to press forward in our Lord Jesus Christ, not to be complacent even in this time in which we have... uh, Uh, a disruption in our ordinary life and schedule. We pray that uh, you would give us wisdom to press on in that race and that we should have a holy dissatisfaction with the way that things have been and even with the way that things are. We pray that we would all together as a church walk by the same rule and be of the same mind, for we have not attained, nor have we been in any way perfected. But Christ has laid hold of us by grace. And so this thing we do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, we once again would devote ourselves to press toward that goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's conclude by singing together number 145 in the blue book. Number 145, I'll give you praise, my God, O King. And we'll conclude. 145A.
And now may he who began a good work in you complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.